You are listening to the Enormo Cast. High performance climbing apparel that looks so cool on your Instagram can look notoriously out of place when you're back in real life amongst the civvies in the valley below. Just so you know, while you're waiting in line for your frothy mochaccino, bright orange pants pretty much say, I just escaped from prison. Enter Black Diamond's new forged denim pants. The Cordura blended denim stretches when you need it, fends off sharp crystals and rough rock, and looks great back at work, with just enough chalk dust to let other climbers in the office know that you are training at lunch, you sick bird. So if you want to feel good, look good on the rock and when mingling with lowlanders, like an undercover climbing super agent, then go to blackdiamondequipment.com or your favorite local shop and rub up against a pair of forged denim pants from Black Diamond. Black Diamond is a proud sponsor of the EnormaCast. We gotta get Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing in town? You, are you playing here? We're doing the uh, Enormo Dome, whatever it is. It's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, big house. place. Sold that's, it out. that's a big nice. place. You sold it out. I'll see. We really should. The hell are you doing? I couldn't sleep. I'm checking the ropes. There was a frayed end on Europe, and I'm cutting it out. Good weather, bad weather. Now or later, anytime. Today's show is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment, with support from Maxim Ropes. And the fine folks at La Sportiva. And don't forget our charter sponsor, Bonfire Coffee. Go to bonfirecoffee.com and enter Enorma at checkout for a discount on great coffee and to support the Enorma cast. And now back to the show. Hello and welcome to the Enorma cast. This is your host, Chris Calouse. It is June 28th, 2019, about 2 o'clock here in Colorado. And on today's show, Canadian super athlete, Will Gadd. That's right, a double shot of Canadians. Just had Allison Vest on last time, and uh, here's Will Gadd for you. Just serving it up to my brothers and sisters up there in North America's hat, Canada. And really, I'm just trying to smooth the way, because the Enormo Mama and myself are going to hand off the Enormo baby to a normal grandma. All right. That's getting a little weak. Anyway, we're going to get rid of the kid for a week and go up to Squamish later this month. Never been. Kind of a gigantic hole in my resume, considering I do consider myself a proficient crack climber. And uh, yeah, I don't know why I've never been. I used to go up to Calgary a lot, up to Canmore, the Ghost River, the Bow Valley, that area. And I just kind of got hooked on doing new routes up there, I think. And when I was a teacher, I had summers off, but then I started painting houses and painting houses happens in the summer and early and even late fall until the snow flies, which I think overlaps pretty hard with the great Squamish season. Plus Squamish is diagonal, much harder to go diagonally across the country if you're not flying. Do you know what I'm talking about? Can you feel me going north, south, east, west directly? across the United States, and probably Canada too. Pretty easy. Going diagonally, man, a lot of angles to cover. Back and forth, turning left, turning right. Uh, 
it's hard. We're flying this time, but back in the day, I would never have gone for just a week. You know, why would you have gone that far for only a week? It'd be like two months or something. But you folks who have jobs and kids and all that stuff know why we only get a week, don't we? Can't hand a three-year-old off to very many people for more than a week. Anyhow, so we'll be up there. So if you see us, say hello. I don't know about getting interviews. I haven't really contacted anybody, but you know, if the opportunity presents itself, probably be a climber or two worth talking to in Squamish in July. Also on the immediate horizon in July is the International Climbers Festival up in Lander. The entourage and I will be there. Come check it out. Come say hi to us. We'll have a table at the trade fair. Come get a t-shirt, hat, stickers for varying prices. Stickers are always free. I'm sure they will stick us on the fringes away from the respectable brands. Probably right next to the climbing zine, actually. So say hi to Luke Mihal and the climbing zine guys and girls and come over and say hi to us at the Normacast table. We'll probably have some beer and a cooler for you. Okay, on to the interview with Will Gadd. Will Gadd doesn't need much of an introduction. He's been around for a long time, multi-sport athlete, coming out of Canmore primarily. And I don't know where we met. I know we've met, and we orbited each other for years because of my uh, time up there in Calgary, Canmore area. But it was great to sit down and get to know this guy, Deep History. Actually, Deep History in the United States, back in the beginnings of sport climbing around Boulder. He was there doing that. Also, an early comp climber, all the way up through alpinism to paragliding, ice climbing. The guy's got a deep resume. So, let's get to it, eh, buddy? A conversation with Will Gadd. Look. Everything you do from being born to your last breath has an environmental impact of some sort. And so many things we do in climbing are a lot higher impact than we'd care to think about. You know, it's too bad you can't convert those sweet ukulele riffs into diesel fuel, eh, van lifers? But little things can help, and Sportiva wants you to know about the Mythos Eco. Of course, the Mythos has been a do-everything big route and trad shoe for decades. But now the Mythos Eco has the same legendary performance, but they're cobbled together from 95% recycled material. And then Sportiva found ways to lighten the impact further by using water-based glues and metal-free tanning. And oh, that lacing system's still there to fine-tune the snug and confound your brain in equal measure. So if you're looking for an all-day shoe, a crack shoe, or a do-everything-all-the-time shoe, why not have one less dirty impact on the world and check out the Mythos Eco, or its racier pal, the Cobra Eco, at Sportiva.com or your favorite local shop. Level check coming at you. We're going to talk about why we need to build a wall between the U.S. and Canada because the situation is badly out of hand. Some of these people, I presume, are decent people, but a lot of them coming into Canada, these are not good hombres, eh? No. So in Canada, we're going to build a wall to keep the bad hombres out. And the, the thing is, is you're going to get the ideologues on both sides. Yeah. We, we do not want any of this like super Western rhetoric on either side of the political spectrum. We figure a wall, it'll work like a filter on your amp. We'll have like a low pass and a high pass and let the center through. Yeah. Uh, if we could find that, that'd be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Except for the center is going to stay home. Yeah. The center is boring. Yeah, they're like, they're not fired they're up. like, oh, we'll just wait till it gets better. Yeah. Um, somebody will make it better eventually. Yeah, somebody will make it better. I love that. Well, I'm glad you don't have a wall at the moment. No. Um, although immigration there has changed a bit, I think. 
uh, from when I used to go up there. And um, I was trying to think of how we have either met or, I mean, I know we communicated a lot yep. and, and that's kind of sometimes becomes proxy for us, like having hung out, but I don't think we've spent a lot of time in the same room together. No. And, and one of the original kind of connections we have now is that you were uh, an intern, one of the, the first intern, I think, yeah. uh, ever, right? For yeah. Climbing Magazine. Yeah, they didn't know what an intern was. I was like, I'd really like to be an intern because I'd heard this was a good thing to do and I was in school and so I wanted to, uh, I wanted to be an intern and learn how about this publishing business. Right. And so I, I called Climbing Magazine up and that was Michael Kennedy and Allison and Benj and everybody. I was like, I'd like to be an intern. And like, what does an intern do exactly? And I was like, whatever you like and they were, for free. Yeah. <laughs> they, they looked up intern and they're like, yeah, that's someone that comes and works for you for free. They're for like, free. that sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> so, I was it. I was doing everything from make coffee to like lay out the old pieces of type on the page for them to shoot. But right. um, and you know, this those, was in Aspen. Yeah, That was in Aspen. Yeah. yeah like what like 89 uh -huh. probably something like that 88 right and, uh, yeah it was but i learned a lot there a lot of what i use today came out of those experiences michael kennedy and allison their work ethic you know michael kennedy would get up every morning at five in the morning or earlier he'd be driving by five eat a right. bowl of oatmeal go in and alpine style his magazine all day until like single push it until like midnight you know and, and everybody worked that way and then you'd sleep on the floor and you'd get up and you'd do it again and I, I realized pretty quickly that I was a slacker and um, had to bring my game up to the climbing magazine. But, I, I, you know, that's how I look at things today. It's like, go hard. And, I mean, how old were you? 20 or something? Yeah, like 20, 21 maybe. Right, right. Yeah. I was blown away. Youth dog. Yeah, I was the youth dog. That was, that was their nickname. <laughs> Julie told me, yeah, Will was the youth dog living in his truck in the winter in, in, uh, in Aspen. That, that was cool. But Allison took pity on me. You know, Allison OCS, she was like the untouchable heroine in my mind. And I was sleeping in her closet. And I felt pretty honored. Was right, like, right. She's on. like, we'll let the youth dog sleep in the closet in there. Yeah, that was like, that was Allison's heyday. Oh, you man. know, I mean, 89 was like, right. Snowbird. Yeah. 88 Snowbird. She was oh, yeah. in that. Oh, she like was that. so rad and, yeah. and, you know, super well educated yeah. and smart person. Oh, yeah. and, and you, you just really realized that there's, for me, it was really eye opening both professionally and from a climbing perspective, but you know, I just, I thought these people are awesome. I want to be like them. Yeah. It's cool that they were in our, I mean, continue to be Allison is at rock and ice now, but yeah. Michael's long gone from, from, from climbing and, and Michael Bench too is gone. Um, but the the cool thing about like i think generation generationally is that climbers a lot of them were these like well, like you said really really smart people yeah you know and, and climbing is still something allison is solely passionate about but yeah. you know professionally she replaced she had you know plenty to fall back on to replace it because oh, yeah. a professional climber was a was like a hardly known thing at that point yeah she know? and didn't exist you know yeah, she's columbia school exist. of journalism complete right. and super talented for her era of climbing and you know anybody's era really she's really talented climber but that was another thing that michael mk said to me he was like you know this climbing thing and that's what i was really into i was going to comps and writing about comps and writing about climbing and he's like this climbing thing's good but make sure you've always got something good in your your back pocket that you can do and right that's what mk did you know he did his amazing alpine climbs and continued to do that for a lot of decades but then he also had the magazine and and uh had this other career so you just mentioned comps. Yeah. That, and, and I think that's like so far in your past that maybe people don't even realize that. Yeah. Plus, like what competition climbing appeared to be then, I mean, it's yeah. like vastly different than what it is now. So let's jump back into the past there and, and talk a little bit about 
a, a kid or you're 21. It wasn't a kid's game then actually yet either in terms of like these, you know, 12, 13, 14 year olds. But uh, what, what did comp climbing look like then? And, and how did you get into this like very new thing of, of comp climbing? Yeah, well, I mean, I was, when I was in school, the reason I went to school in Colorado and, and coming from Canada and going to school in Colorado was for rock climbing. That's what I wanted to do. And um, Colorado was the place to do that. And somehow Colorado College let me in. I don't think I'd get in today. But while I was there, I started, you know, climbing more and more and did less and less ice climbing because ice climbing in Colorado, with the exception of your A, kind of sucks. And uh, that's the wind the Colorado ice climbers up there a bit. But there's just not that much of it. Right, know? right. Yeah. And it's the season's pretty short even back then. And so I got more and more into rock climbing and more and more stoked on it. And that's what I was doing. I mean, school was basically just a vehicle <laughs> to go climbing. And though I did learn a lot of things at school that were useful, I would go climbing every afternoon out there at the Garden of the Gods in Colorado Springs and put up some new routes there and got involved with this guy named Dale Goddard. And uh, Dale Goddard was a, this, we call him Skeletor. He was, nobody will ever be as fit as Dale was in that era. He was right. amazing and, and started climbing with him and this guy named Christian Griffith. And we were going hard. That was what was, that's what I was doing. That's what my life meant. It was like, can I get better at hard sport climbing? I specialized in that. And then these comps started happening like Snowbird and the Jeff Lowe thing. And I think I reported on one of the early ones because I was working as a reporter writing stories anyhow. And then I, I was like, well, I'm climbing all right. Maybe I could do one of these things. So I went to the first ever comp at Cats in Boulder. And uh, Rob had built this crazy wall, like levered out from the side of the the, the place in Boulder. And I competed on that thing. And Jason Karn, Jim Karn's little brother, was like, and there was like, well, it's like all these boulder climbers with the badasses of that era were there. And I did pretty well. And uh, I was like, this is, I really liked the, because I've always liked on site climbing. For me, that's what I love about climbing. Like red point climbing, it's, it's repetitive. And, mm-hmm. and, and I just, yeah, by definition. Yeah, yeah, I try again and again right. and again. Right. So you like, hate the route. Yeah, I like, I and like, then you finally do it and you're like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, like, <laughs> so I've never, and, it just didn't really fit with my ADD personality, the whole red point thing, like that patience thing. I, I don't like that. I like I like to the death climbing. Like you get up there and you just fucking give it. Right. And comps are, that's what comps are for me. Right. You get one shot, you know, to quote Eminem, you get one shot, one opportunity. And I, I love that intensity. And I never like climb in a comp to beat anyone. I'm there to like send the route. That is the mission statement. Somebody's built a route and I'm going to try and send it. Right. You know? and, I'm, and I was, I loved that about comp climbing. So I did a lot of it. But it was a, yeah, it was an era before really, you know, I got some free shoes from Sportiva, which I'm really stoked about. Thank you very much. I really liked those shoes, you know, it's a long time ago, but I appreciated it. And, and um, I couldn't make a living at it, but I did compete on the World Cup, did two seasons on the World Cup and started to get a couple top 15 finishes and started to be competitive there. But I was living on like potatoes and tuna fish and shoplifting. And at a certain point, I just cracked. I was like, I can't, I didn't see the way forward. And uh well, there kind of wasn't one. Yeah, and, and I wanted there to be. Like, I right. I put everything into it. I was, I was, you know, every definition of anorexic, I was there. I was living on, like, rice cakes and mustard. Right. I was taking this not just seriously, but, like, life-consumingly everything I had at it. And it was, it was awesome, and it was terrible, and it was ridiculous, and it was magic, man. Right. That era was so good. We were wearing Lycra that was way too tight. It was, like, shrinking our gonads and giving us bad attitudes and shit. And we're living on, like, no-fat diets with no protein. Right. So we're all, like, I had ridges in my fingernails from not eating enough fat. Like, this is a crazy fucking era, man. And I was into it. And we were all there. And it was awesome for that. I don't regret one minute of that time. But it it, it was 
it vacuumed my soul eventually. I had to kind of go, right, there must be more than running, you know, three and a half to four and a half percent body fat and hanging on the fingerboard. Yeah, I mean, you you guys were, it's, it's such an interesting, uh, looking back on it, it's interesting because that there was that theory of just like, be just as light as possible yeah. at all costs. And, uh, and you know, Dale was famous for it. Oh, yeah. You know, Jeff Wiegand was in there. And oh, like, yeah. Um, and Christian was in there. Yeah, Christian too. I had to yeah. climb a lot with Christian. Yeah, he's, he's, yeah that that's, whole era. Yeah, that's pretty cool. And it was also the beginning of sport climbing, at yeah. least in the United States. Yeah, and Catch, it was Catching great. up with, with Europe and, you know, causing problems, you know, like yeah. in places like Boulder in terms yeah. of, of the new ethic of bolting and rap bolting and things like oh, that. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. No, it, was, I, it was an awesome era to be part of and, and uh, I look back on isn't that. Isn't it? I don't, you probably don't even know, but... My understanding was like the original wall and holds are still at cats. Yeah. Or it was up until recently. Yeah, I don't think Rob knew that you could use T nuts. So we were using like lag bolt to slap right. them on it. Like yeah. we didn't know. Like we didn't. But those eras of training back there with like with Rob and, you know, I used to train from like 10 in the evening till two in the morning because there's nobody else in the gym. We go mm-hmm. in there and play like ministry, eat hot sauce and like mess ourselves up. And it was awesome, man. It was so good. Yeah. But- and it was so pure and it was so twisted. You yeah. know, it's like we went way down the rabbit hole and I, I'm really glad to have gone there. Right. It was awesome. I mean, it's, yeah, this is not a training podcast. So please no one take any of this as, as proper advice. No, <laughs> our diet it. was terrible. We, you know, I, I remember the, I remember the first time I saw Sharma compete. That was the end of my climbing career. And this kid named Sharma shows up and we're all in isolation. We're low blood sugar and unhappy and and surly and you know we're anorexic and so you know there's a lot of like it's not that great and chris comes in and he's late for isolation but they let him in anyhow because he's the wonder kid and he has this incredible lunch in his hand it smells so good it's like the whole room it's like a pack of dogs just turned toward him and like <laughs> start circling him but he's got a happy be <laughs> like fucking happy meal right and we're all trying to do this boulder problem and, and it had this like shitty pocket in it and everybody's trying really hard and chris walks over to it looks at it and he's got the happy meal on the other hand and he grabs the pocket and pulls up and looks into the one hand none of us can even stick it and he's got the happy meal and i just and then he climbed right and all of our styles were totally different and i saw him climb and he had a disc man this is like a thing to play cds that weighs like 10 pounds because he had the sport edition mm-hmm. on, and two or three speed like spare cds on his back just in case he ran out of music on the route so he's got that and in, in, in his on his back and he's got a wallet that's like two and a half inches thick in his pocket and like none of us touch the finals route and chris just marches it with right. all this extra gear like I dieted to within an inch of my life to lose the weight of his CD man or whatever right, it was, you know? Right. And I was just like, that's the future. And he was happy and well-adjusted mm-hmm, seemingly. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow, my era is done and yeah, good riddance. That's perceptive because uh, <laughs> that's the one thing that Tommy told me is that, because he was in, you know, he was a compatriot of, of Chris and yeah. the comp years. And that's exactly what he told me. He's like, we just climb better than those guys because we were having more fun they were they yeah. we were not about having fun we were like this had meaning and god damn it we were going to drive it into the dirt to get there yeah. it didn't matter what it took we were going so yeah it was that was me banging the coffee cup oh, sorry. sorry yeah but it was yeah it was an era man it was not about uh, you know i think all of us were weekend was certainly 
dark side. Yeah, for sure. You know, yeah. and even, you know, my friend Twight was dark side and I liked his writing better than most of the, the other writing in the magazines because it at least had some soul to it. Yeah, we just had, I just had him on the show. I'm going to yeah. listen to that, man. Yeah, yeah. Mark yeah, and I used to do debates together, so right. I got to listen to it. So. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah. yeah. And it's funny that because while you were talking just a second ago before you brought uh, Mark up, I just like, I kind of was like, yeah, I mean, it was, it wasn't just the comp climbing, like the whole scene yeah, whether it was alpinism or or track climbing or anything, yeah. had this kind of other than maybe Yosemite was was grooving out to the to the although in the eighties, no things changed there too. It's like I'm not sure. Yeah, so I mean, it was kind of a, a wild era where climbing just was angsty in a little bit. Well, I think we were rebelling against this whole like high gloss eighties thing, you know, and hairspray right. and stuff, and it's like we were living in the dirt and training like machines, and and you know, we made some huge advances in, in climbing, right? At least for us at that time, and it was like, yeah, this is. This is like super, super meaningful, but we were convinced of that, but the rest of the world hadn't caught on yet. So there's a lot of dissidence between our like own view of what we were doing in the rest of the world. And then we had to fight against that. And, and I think a lot of it was like, it's like punk music. You know, right. a lot of us came out of the punk music scene and it was like, you know, I remember competing in the Canadian nationals and uh, I had like, you know, the peace sign shaved in the back of my head and, and you know, leather mini skirts were like part of my attire back then. And it's like, we were kind of rebelling against this whole like go to work, get a job and be a success thing. We're like, what we're doing has way more meaning. We have zero money as a result, but we don't care. It's like, fuck you. We're going to do this as much and all the time as we can. And it, it took a little bit of rebellion. Whereas now I think it's like, be yourself. And all of this is kind of caught on a bit more. Yeah. And it's okay to live in your van. I was just called a freak because I lived in my van. Now right. it's like van life. Yeah. There's no van life. <laughs> it's like, you're fucking homeless, man. Right, right, homeless, yeah. It's definitely, they're, they're very, uh, they're, they're right, uh, there's a, a fine line yeah, yeah. between the two. No, um, it's, it's, it's great. You, so where, where did you, where are you, where are you from in Canada? Oh, I, you grew up? It's, it's kind of a complicated story, but I grew up in the Canadian Rockies. Okay. And, uh, and then, you know, I've always lived in the Rockies. I lived in Europe a little bit. I lived in Salt Lake a right. little bit. Lived in Boulder for about ten years, but always in the Rockies somewhere. You know, okay, that's, that's my home. And so, you know, you you found this place in Boulder specifically, or, or the Front Range, because yeah, you were in CC. But I mean, was that something conscious? Like this is the scene that I'm looking for, and I can't find that. I mean, because I think it sounds like at least at that time. I mean, sport climbing and things like that were just coming into the states. They were in Europe, but I, you know. I mean, they're still bolting angst in. Oh yeah, like I got one of my Camor. roots. I got well yeah. around Camor and yeah. in Colorado. Yeah. I mean, Dale and yeah. I got one of our roots chopped at Turkey right. Rock. Right, we, and we bolted that thing like on lead. You know, right. We bolted on lead. We bolted it twice. Yeah. But anyhow, yeah, there's like bolt yeah. chopping going on. That was the era. Right. But um. But I no, I came there because of the climate. Okay. Like, I, I, and I also wasn't really into kayaking as well. You know, I've always done a lot of sports. So okay. I liked, I liked the kayaking thing, and I still had like, you know, I did want to get an education and and. Uh, CC fortunately decided that that would be right. possible and, and uh, made it reasonable for me to go to school there. So I have a weird question. Were you ever into BMX? Yeah, I did BMX. It wasn't any good at it though. BMX back then was different than it is now. Right. BMX back then was pretty much purely how far you can huck yourself. Right. And yeah, so yeah, BMX and skateboarding too. I mean, right. I had a half pipe in my backyard and pretty stoked on that whole scene i wanted to live in southern california i wanted to be those guys so bad and in canada the climate pretty much that was not going to happen you know you just can't wear your your super cool shirt out there when it's minus 30 you know i used to like scrape the half pipe off as a kid to go out there and ride it but the urethane just didn't work well at minus 30 it was super slippery it just got really hard yeah, yeah you like just a rock yeah you just rack it was not planned out they were not thinking of us in southern california with those wheels 
Designers everywhere. <laughs> Think of the Canadians, man. Right, right on. Yeah, so. <laughs> but no, I went to Boulder because it, yeah. it was a rock climbing scene, but right. it was, I was still trying to figure out like whether I wanted to do, more. I pretty much decided I didn't want to do alpine climbing anymore. I'd done a bunch of that in high school and mm-hmm. it was pretty much just seeing too many people die and, and uh, I decided that I wanted to focus more on the technical side of things. Yeah, I mean, it's the Canadian Rockies are gnarly. The Canadian and Rockies the, are gnarly. The, the alpine scene then was super gnarly well yeah my yeah. one of my best friends in high school we would like we'd go rock climbing one day and then we'd go alpine climbing this is a guy named ken walleter mm-hmm. and this dude is like pretty unknown but he was hard he fell off the weeping wall doing a new route on that big limestone cliff up there broke his back messed himself up like six ways repels out you know crawls to the road gets in his van starts driving and somehow like flags somebody down and says, I'm probably not going to make it to the hospital. So just tell him I'm parked beside the road. And then he passes out. <laughs> so the ambulance like, is that the van? Right. <laughs> like grab getting Like this guy's hard. That's my partner in high school. Right. And he was always doing stuff like that to himself. And, and I, you know, everybody that was an Alpine climber as a kid, they all pretty much died. Right. And I just, I grew up going to wakes and it made a decision. It's like, the rock climbers, they tended to live a little longer anyhow. And I was like, I'm going to focus on that just because I just, every time I went alpine climbing and I did a fair amount of it, it was, it was awesome. It's beautiful. And I still get sucked back into it. It's like an addiction problem. It's like, I right. got to go back and do my once every five years thing. But for me, that objective hazard did not, did not add up. And I couldn't quantify it or describe it in the same way that I could now, but I saw it. And Boulder was the place to go to go rock climbing and still get an education. Yeah. Yeah. And so I was like, I'm in. Right. And man, Colorado's great. Well, I think the, the, big, the big push with, uh, there, there, there's a lot of like looking back on where sport climbing came from. Um, but one of the things I think that, that helped it catch on and be popular, because for a long time it was only, it was only for really good climbers. Like mm-hmm. there was no such thing as a, a purely sport bolted five eight. Yeah, no. That yeah. Was, why would you do that? Yeah, <laughs> and so, but it, yeah. but it allowed you to climb harder in a safer way. Oh, it was great. Yeah, and and you know, cl- rock climbing to a certain extent up to that point was a like was like kayaking and like alpinism. That yeah. harder meant at least some more risk. Yeah, and and all of a sudden there was this way to like charge like you wanted yeah. to charge without it being more death-defying yeah and that's what turned me off alpine climbing right. too like if it gets hard enough to be hard climbing in alpine climbing then you you know you start doing things like falling off which mm-hmm. is not a good idea in right. general so you and i, I love the climbing i wanted the climbing like i always wanted in the alpine climbs i'm like i wanted more steep hard pitches and it just it didn't work. Whereas in sport climbing, you could focus on doing like the hard moves, man. Yeah. And it yeah. was great. Yeah. I just love that. I felt like I was getting the entree versus like faffing around with the salad. Like alpine climbing has a lot of fucking salad in it, man. You got to go out there and put your tent up and make little platforms and just it's, it's endless fucking around. Compared right. to sport climbing, you go out there and you pull. Right. And sport climbers are committed. Yeah. Alpine climbers, by and large, they're not very committed. They're committed to going and almost getting killed like five times a year. Right. Sorry, that's not very radical. Sport climbers, they train like 300 days a year. Right. And they're really, really good at it. And so for me, like, and Mark and I used to, twice, you know, I used to argue about this. He'd be like, we're so committed. I'm like, you just go and risk your life occasionally. 
Like, it's not a great amount of fucking skill. And he's like, well, surviving is a skill. And I'm like, well, if that's how you define your climb is like surviving is a success, then what's the point? Why not just go play Russian roulette? And he'd be like, but I have to be fitter. And I'm like, oh God, you go and run up another hill. Anyhow, was, we'd have these great arguments and I have a tremendous- Dude, I'll of, host one. I'll host the next yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. No, let's go be, back and let's do it. <laughs> Mark is like, it's ethically pure. And I was like, it's I not believe- ethically pure. You sound like Hitler. And he'd be like, you just invoked Hitler. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, we're not here to be like Dude, pure. We got, I, I got Mark on in my phone now. I got to get this done. Yeah, Mark had a, Mark's a great. I, I really like and respect. <laughs> that Mark. would be so wild. To but do I, it 20 I, I years mean, later. I'm talking shit about Alpine climbing to probably just wide people up a bit. But it, 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 it I, I did love the. To me, the, the, the emphasis on like outcome and trying really hard in sport climbing and like doing your best and like really, really training and, and putting that commitment level into it. That that is really attractive to me. Yeah, well, it's funny you're, you know, you're like, yeah, I, I didn't want to alpine climb anymore. I'm like, uh, Will, you've done plenty of alpine. Climbing. <laughs> well, it's different. It's different. And it's funny because you're you're going on about sport climbing, and I, but I think like it, our the audience is probably not associating you right now in this part of your career as as a sport climber at all. Yeah, well, yeah. That, so you know, well, yeah. let me ask you that. Like, <laughs> you know, Sharma came in with his his McDonald's bag, and he yeah, said, yeah. "I knew this was that was the end of the era." Done. Yeah. So, what what was next then? What was the next era? Well, Where I, did you move to in terms of climbing? Yeah, I mean, for a while, I didn't know what I was going. I was really tired of being in a gym, breathing chalk, and and hanging on little holds. That had there was nothing that I felt at that time that could be new in that environment and sport climbing kind of like you know 14b or whatever i've been climbed at that time and i was like how much harder you can climb 14c is that actually radder and i, I was on sighting well at that time and as i was like i inside another letter grade like the fun cool curve for me had kind of like peaked it was like i didn't see where it was going to go and in retrospect that was my own lack of vision you know like i could have taken it a lot of places i just couldn't see it like mm-hmm. a lot of things in life you, you can't see the path when you're there and, and I was sick of living on rice cakes and training too. That was like, I was pretty much over that. So I got into a sport where it was good to be heavy, which is paragliding. <laughs> I was like, I, yeah, yeah, it was paraglider. It was like, you know, a, a trash can with arms. It was like, it was perfect. Man. Right. I was like, I'm gonna, and I love paragliding because it was total freedom, man. You get to cruise around the sky. You get to see the mountains in this beautiful, beautiful way. And right. it's it's engaging. You're not, you're not, it's like on-site climbing. You launch and you're on-site climbing until you hit the ground one way or the other. Right. And I love that. So I got into that. And I mean, I still went climbing some. It's not like I had a hate on for climbing. It just wasn't firing me up anymore, even though I really wanted it to. It just wasn't. And then paragliding did that. So I, I got way, way into that. And I've always been a multi-sport athlete. Like I've always gone kayaking in the spring and did a lot of paddling on the front range and you know got a few new rivers i bounced down on the front range with with friends and paddled a ton every spring in colorado and then you know mountain biking too i'll do just about anything but um yeah then it was paragliding and uh and i was kind of turned into a success or whatever you want to call it professionally i was working at bigger magazines and starting magazines and Worked for a great guy in Boulder named John Windsor. He's still kicking around. And um, so I was running some outdoor sports magazines. And these were like generalist magazines, not right. not climbing magazines. And, you know, I actually had enough of a of a paycheck that I could like walk into the grocery store and buy anything I wanted. Uh-huh, nice. So I was pretty rich, you know. Right. I was like, I can, I, can, I can buy two of anything I want in here. Right. Like, I don't care what it is. I can, and for me, I'd never, I don't come from money. I'd never had that before. And it was pretty great. And I was flying a ton and, and uh, got really stoked on that and still climbing. But um, yeah, it wasn't in, in the nice climbing. 
I grew up ice climbing, you know, I've right. been ice climbing my whole life. And I, and I went ice climbing in, in Colorado for sure, but I did all the like classics in Colorado. And then I was kind of like, the rock climbing is way better here. <laughs> so did that. But, uh, and then, yeah, the, the ice climbing thing, the mixed climbing thing came along. Well, that, I was gonna, just going to preface that by, you know, you just said, uh, you know, you didn't have this vision to see where sport climbing was going to go for you. Yeah. And, and in general, you know, and, and these sports take, that you know the word visionary is tossed around but that's what yeah. you're talking about is someone that's seeing what's beyond the door while you know while it's still yeah. closed so to speak they're the ones who open the door in that you know when you said that a minute ago i thought ice climbing like that was somewhere exactly where you were that guy to sort of be like wow there's you know we're we're scraping up these waterfalls They've been done before. Yeah. And not, not that. that's why I quit ice climbing. Yeah. It's like, there's, I didn't yeah. quit. So let's talk like, a bit about like the, the move into where you were going. I just well, want to preface that with the ice climbing. And well, and that's climbing. a good point. You yeah. know, I, I, I didn't, I didn't see it with ice climbing in my teens. I climbed a lot of the grade five and grade six routes in the Canadian Rockies. And I was like, the only way to make this harder is to make it more dangerous. The route's going to fall down. Right. If the route stays Again. attached to the wall, it, it, I'm going up. Like, or if I don't do something stupid, which happens pretty regularly, you know, like the, the challenge wasn't the climbing. The, the, the challenge was the root staying attached to the wall or not getting hit with a piece of falling ice. It, and, I, and I sort of, that's why I loved rock climbing. Again, it was that like, yeah, you grab the hold and you pull. Like this is, that is like, that's why I like climbing. You know, the climbing part, you like grab on and you yard on shit. I like right. that. And ice climbing didn't have that. So mixed climbing came along and initially it was traditionally protect, protected mixed climbing, but taking that into harder places you know we're climbing at Vail on these uh on these routes in Vail and initially it was it, a lot of them were done on like natural gear and stuff and and then I saw that picture of Jeff Lowe on Octopussy and I was like that is rad and I've known Jeff for a long time and I called Jeff up and I said that's really cool and he's like yeah this is this is really neat and then started doing more climbing with Jeff and I actually did a few routes with Mark up on the diamond one of them just got repeated recently by Corey and somebody else mm -hmm. but uh, maybe that was you I can't remember no <laughs> Um, anyhow, but yeah, it just all of a sudden you had ways to make like ice climbing hard. You know, you had to like move from blob to blob, like and 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 get on these icicles, and it was super physical. And I, I thought this is pretty much the coolest thing in the world because there's so many lines out there that we'd like waited for the icicle to reach the ground. That was the rule. We didn't have the vision to see around that. And then Jeff had that vision, and I was like, I'm in. And. uh and I, you know, I still had this job. I was like working for um, Windsor and doing qualitative market research. And that actually had an impact too. I was doing all these focus groups with like inline skate kids. And at the same time I was getting into mixed climbing, the inline skate world was like totally taking off. And I saw all these kids doing these things with their skates that were like completely outside of what anybody had thought of rollerblading being possible. And everybody was dissing these kids. They were talking shit. They're like, you're a rollerblader. And they'd be like, fuck you, man. I'm an inline skater. And I throw down and I'm like, aggressive skating is what it was called. And I was mm -hmm. like, people are kind of starting to mock us for this idea of, of, of climbing up to the icicles with our ice tools. Like just wait for it to form once in your generation, it might. And then you'll go, no, that's not a good idea. And I, I really took inspiration from these inline skating kids, the aggressive skaters. Cause they right. were like, it was the same punk ethic that I like grew up with. It's like, you do your own thing. And like, you know, the world will mock you, but do it because you think it's cool. And, 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 and I loved it. It was like, it was, it was great. And, and the, just the sheer complexity of the environment too, you know, moving from these little dabs of ice to grab some little chunk of rock with your ice tool. This was like, this was, this is definitely the best thing ever, man. It was really, really cool. 
In terms of the dissing, um, and it's always been like, I mean, it continues to sort of be yeah. like old school, new school controversies. Yeah. I mean, is that no problem for you? Just like you got the, enough punk to be just like. No, I mean. It. Or, no, or, and or that, does it affect you? Well, it really bothered me because there's like there's this alpine inferiority complex and it's pervasive and, and drug resistant. And like we never wanted to go alpine climbing, mm-hmm. but the alpine climbers were all dissing us. Mark wrote this thing about how the X Games were like evil and, you know, going to like rip the soul out of climbing. We're like, dude, what you're doing, we're not like up there. I think, what did I write? I wrote something about like, we're not up there like roasting yak dung and finding like leftover rice or something at 16,000 feet. We're like, we're like going to give her as hard as we can. That's what we, that's what we're here to do. Right. And we're, we're not, I never felt threatened by alpine climbers or, but that side of the world was threatened because we really liked what we were doing and it showed. It was like pure passion and the pictures were great, you know, like icicles and hanging off of them. And they're like, wait a minute, we use those ice tools for like ice climbing or alpine climbing and you're not, you're not doing it right. You know, you need to go out there and, and lose digits and, and um, suffer and almost die to use that equipment, son. And I was like, fuck that, man. Right. <laughs> you know, like we're going to go hard here. And uh and again, it was that same kind of like punk ethic. And yeah, it really, it always bothers me. I don't, I don't like sometimes in my life, I do want to be a dick. And um, if I'm going to do that, okay, that I'm okay with that. But I really don't want to unintentionally do that. Mm-hmm. And it really bothered me that these people I looked up to were, were, you know, including Twite were dissing what I was doing. But also at the same time, it was kind of like you take it for a bit and then you got to kind of stand where you are. And with the sport climbing, it was the same thing, you know? We were called lycra faggots, unlike bumper stickers. And I don't, you know, that was that was meant to be this horrendous insult. And so, like, we adopted more and more outrageous dress. Like, I would get the ugliest lycra I could, because if I was going to be a lycra faggot, I'm going to, like, go big. Right. If they're going to insult me as that, I'm going to live up to it. You know, I used to go, like, I, I like, it was that era of androgyny and stuff. And I had big red plastic earrings like just provoke people i was like if you hate on that that much i'm gonna be that and let's see how you deal with it mm-hmm. that was the era right. <laughs> it's like if they're gonna call me that i'm gonna be that and i'm right. gonna be proud about it and it was like that was a whole era and with that that helped again with the mixed climbing when they're like dry tooling is for like teenagers to be like yeah i was good in high school and i'm still having a good time man. Right. like you know like that's how i kind of had to deal with it and it was just so much fun man like it, it, people would talk shit and then they'd, you know, we'd, we'd be climbing at Vale, Helgi Christensen and Jeff Lowe and um, Pete Takeda and all these guys. We'd be climbing there and like, you know, the gator wearing crew would show up. They'd laugh at us and like mm-hmm. mock it. And then somebody would try it and they'd get stoked right. and then they'd get sucked in. And like three weeks later, they'd be like, can I have burn on the route? And be like, oh yeah, man. And then they'd be regulars. And it was this scene that was so far out of kind of anything else in climbing and so weird that like I was still working a full-time job at that point but it was awesome and I was driving over there and going climbing and just loving it man like it was great so it couldn't have hurt that Jeff was a big proponent of it I mean you know he's he's got an alpine record that is is basically irreproachable you know yeah um well Jeff Jeff is a very you know I've known known jeff forever and and uh he he like visionary there's jeff like let's just have right. a picture of jeff right um guy's awesome and uh even though he was involved in it he could stand on his alpine pedigree and you know i couldn't really do that and neither could helgi and and uh so jeff was never really getting dissed 
but the whole the whole concept was getting dissed. And you know, sport climbing went through that at first also, right? Remember the bumper stickers in Boulder that Mark Wilford made them. And it was like sport climbing is neither, which is a play on the whole moral majority. You know, Roberts or Falwell or whatever, evangelicalist preacher was behind all of that. But it was like, you know, the moral majority is neither, sport climbing is neither. And and then it was like the dry tooling thing never got to that point. You know, and, and then it and it, we opened up all these routes all over the world. It was so great to show up in like the Rockies again and be like, aha, the classics are yet to be done versus right. they've all been done. Right. The sport's done. It was just a different way of looking at it. And that's what's cool in life is to, for me anyhow, to figure out different ways to look at things. Was there some level too of your, you know, sometimes when you would return to the Alpine, like proper Alpine scene, yeah. bringing that, some of those skills with you? I mean, it seemed like oh, yeah. it, it had the potential to open up. Well, get rid of some of the salad, as you put it yeah. earlier, and, and open up some of this steeper climbing that that, yeah. that, that would never have been touched. And, and I previously. think it's certainly done that, you yeah. know, from, from, you know, Uli Steck and I used to compete together in, on the Ice Climbing World Cup way back in the day. And then he obviously took those skills and went and did these very fast ascents on the Eiger and other mountains all over the world. Same with Thomas Humar, you know, JC. Lef- and there's a lot of people that, that took those higher level dry tooling skills and did very cool things in the mountains with them. And I sort of thought that might be where, where it would go because steeper routes are generally safer in the Alpine. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow, maybe you could climb like, you know, some of these bigger faces. Eventually, the whole mixed climbing thing just became its own game. Right. It was like climb up the crazy rock with cool pieces of ice on it, get on the icicle, and that's enough, man. Like we, It's like sport climbing. You don't need to summit Everest. You know? <laughs> like, right. It just kind of went away. But it, it did have a big impact on the Alpine scene for sure. And, and most of the very good from David Lama, you know, through – that whole era, most of the people who are really good at it, or were really good at it, are, are competent with their, their ice tools on rock, for sure. And uh, I mean, and then it also spurred a technological change yeah. in the way all that gear was being made. Uh, and it was awesome. And that, again, for me, came straight out of the inline skate kids. They'd come in with like their broken skate. And be like, none of the manufacturers make stuff that works for us. And I'd just rip the head off of like an ice tool. And I'd be like, I know what you're talking about. You know, <laughs> I'm running these groups for like Fila and Reebok and stuff on skating and other, other sports at the time. But the, that, that same passion for equipment that worked for your sport right. was, was, uh, was, was there and it, we didn't have it. So we hadn't, you know, that was another thing. We, we started doing things like we cut off, take crampons and, and bolt them onto the boots. Right. And again, it was like, it was the slur was, well, if you're doing that, you know, it's some kind of like unmanly thing. And they called the boots fruit boots. Again, I don't know why all the slurs on like sexual orientation, but that was like, that was what was going on then. And we're like, we're going to own that, man. I climb in fruit boots. Fuck you. Right. And it was, that's what they're called now. Yeah. That's what they and are. Right? Actually, and it's funny that it, it never occurred to me that it was like some sort of like homophobic slur. Until yeah. You just said that. I was like, cause yeah, fruit. I mean that yeah. in, the, in the past, that was definitely the case. And I, yeah. I just kind of thought like. They, they, it rhymed or something, I guess. I don't know. I never thought about yeah, it. Yeah, well, that was always like homo and like, and then we got called faggots and stuff. Yeah. And it was like, and, and that was like, so I think if you, if you take that and you like own it and, and you, then you could fire back and not much can touch you, man. Right. You're like, I'm going to wear bright red earrings and candy striped lycra. And yeah, you can call me a faggot. I don't care, man. Right. You, you'd be like, you can, you could turn that around a bit. And, uh, and hopefully it was positive. You know, I've never really thought through every, part of that stance but for me it's like i will be that right and and you think it's an insult i am that man right and i'm coming at you <laughs> not like a, I, I took it more of a joke like a you know than anything else but it was mm-hmm. like if somebody's gonna call me names i'm gonna like live that name and see how they like that you right know? like 
I don't know. Just the way it was back then. Yeah. So, uh, you know, you're here now. And um, right. I've talked about this before, with, I think, with some other people. But you're, you can kind of elucidate the whole thing around because um, then you guys started to create your ethics. Oh, yeah. Around, around um, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. okay, now now we're like oh, yeah. the punk rockers. Maybe like, well, wait a minute, what about first of all the heel spur thing? Oh yeah, and the the leash thing. Right? Yeah, I mean the leash thing seems to me more like it just that's a functional thing. Like, yeah. you can't be stuck to your tools that way when yeah. you get into steep stuff. But the heel spur thing was sort of a rejection of a style. So I don't know. Maybe you can kind of fill me in. Having not, I mean, I ice climbed. I was the the gator guy um, before the, I mean, the, the last time I climbed the rigid designator, there was, those other routes weren't there yet. Awesome. That's how long ago it was. Yeah. Um, and then I scraped around for a little bit longer and then gave it up. Yeah. So. That's fun. Because it was miserable. Hmm. And, and that, and that, I don't know if that played into your thing too, but climbing like straight waterfalls with like straight oh, shafts. Dude, it's miserable. You beat your it, knuckles yeah, up. Yeah. You, you so, got cold. The yeah. gear wasn't that great. Yeah. You know, the first time I went ice climbing, you needed like a third tool to put the ice screws in. Like the sport was heinous, man. Like, and we didn't know how to ice climb. We, we did not have an understanding of the movement at all. And nobody did. Right. You know, like I climbed grade six back in the day with horrible, I I watched a video of myself the other day and I was like, oh no. (laughs) Just stick man. We didn't, we just didn't know how to do it, man. We just didn't have the movement patterns that we have. So that was my, I missed like like the beginning of what you're talking about by yeah. a few years and 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 i've since like used modern equipment to scratch around like in your and stuff oh, i'm scary. just like oh yeah i, I kind of get why people yeah. are into this again now well it's um, like shaped skis you know like i remember yeah. the first time i skied a shaped ski i was like oh now snowboarding's got a competitor right to that point like i snowboard well i skied but then i got into snowboarding because it was obviously a better tool but yeah the gear developed it yeah yeah anyhow got into so the, back to the heel spur all right yeah thing. well gear i mean gear can and and i think you know as an and <clears throat> as, as a recovering alpine climber and occasionally relapsed alpine climber like how you approach something in the gear you take in any form of climbing or any sport has an effect on it you know like so with heel spurs they were these things that you could hang off your it was like a, a mechanical hook on your foot it was a spur and so you could hang upside down like I once jokingly smoked a cigar hanging upside down in the middle of this cave to kind of make the point that this was not in in some for me this was not really that interesting. Right. So you'd sort of hang upside down by a foot for a bit, totally depump, and then hang upside down by the other foot for a bit, and then move for a bit, and it was really boring. So to me, this like it, it just took away the clock. There was no clock anymore in climbing, and I like that clock. Like, right. You get on there, and you only have so long before you pitch. And it made the movement really, really repetitive. It was like knee bar, knee bar, knee bar, knee bar, knee bar, knee bar, knee bar. I mean, imagine if you could knee bar anywhere at will on a rock climb. That's roughly what was going okay. on. Okay, that'd be a good comparison, maybe. Or if you get a sinker hand jam anywhere on a rock climb, right? That's what allowed. That's what these spurs did. So I was like, "This is lame," and chopped them off. And I said, "I never, you know, if anybody else wants to do that, right on. I don't really care how anybody else climbs. I, I go climb. It's awesome, you know, like giver. But for me, that didn't really work." And um, so I, I cut them off and some other climbers did. And yeah, it was just like, it was a way to drive the f- sport forward. And uh, I got a few more years out of it for sure that way by right. redefining it. Right. Uh, using a little bit of vision, not, you know, not a ton, but a little bit. It made the movement better again. It wasn't just knee bar, knee bar, hand jam. It was like dyno, slap sideways. It had all those elements of climbing. Well, what ha- really where did it come from? Like who was the, who was the person who was 
who put that point on the other side of the crampon because that was an innovation that wasn't there when you started doing it. Yeah, well, just it came like out of uh, Europe or something. Well, just like the, the snowboard comp drove sport climbing, and right. the competition scene drove sport climbing. That's, in my view, what brought the massive escalation in, in grades and talent and everything else. Is now there's a way to like compete publicly in it. And with the ice climbing thing, the same thing happened. They have all these ice climbing World Cups in Europe, and if you had spurs on the back of your feet, then you could just depump on the route at will. And at that point, you were allowed to put your feet on the ice tools. So we actually had all these little like custom hanging points all over our ice tools, so where we could like hang off our feet from our ice tools. So you could get a, you know, it, it sounds ridiculous, and it was, but I was like, I'm over this. Like, you, you can't see, but you just, Will just saw my eyebrows raise up when he said all. I was like, huh? I know. So that was the end of that, and right. uh, and, and the Spurs were gone. A lot of people protested because it did make some of the hard routes a lot easier. Right. You know, if you can hand jam and knee, knee bar out your way up a, a 515, it might make it 510, and that's kind of what it made with these routes too. Is it made them really easy. And so people like that, you know, it's good for the ego. It's good for my ego. I was like, wow, I'm on sighting like M12 or whatever. Well, you know, maybe it's not me. Maybe it's hanging off my feet. But again, it was my decision. If somebody wants to climb that way, like I'm pretty stoked on climbing in general. Like if somebody wants to go A climbing, you know, that's what I do. I just don't clip into my tools. Right. <laughs> Sometimes I do if I get scared, why not? But, uh, you know, it's uh, climbing's just, I think it's awesome, whatever it is. So I, I never want to say that what I'm doing is the right way to do it. I don't right. believe that. This is just my interpretation right now of it, you know, and, and and like go climbing. I love plastic climbing. I go to gyms in every city I go to. I love buildering. I go alpine climbing when I forget that I don't like it and have a great time, you know, and, and I support that. I develop gear for it. You know, I'll, I'll go aid climbing to put up new routes. I do a lot of aiding to, to put up new crazy mixed routes. And I use that in canyoneering and all the other sports I do and, it all goes together, man. It's just, it's good. It's fun. <laughs> were, were you involved? I, I believe it was Ben Firth that did it. But yeah. The sitting in a chair. Thing. Yeah. Ben yeah. Firth clipped it. Uh, I, I, yeah, ben Firth is awesome. I mean, Ben Firth made the point about Spurs by clipping right. a uh, a chair to it than sitting in it. Yes, and reading in the a middle book. of some really gnarly, like supposedly M yeah, whatever. double digit climb. Yeah. Yeah. And it, you know, yeah, yeah. It, it was pretty fun. I smoked my cigar. And I think I read my a copy of my book while hanging upside down by my spurs or something. But right on. It, it's meant more in fun, you know. I'm not, I'm, I'm not trying to tell. It's anybody. still punk rock. A little, I mean, you, you, you gotta have stuff. a little punk in yeah, there, man. Yeah, for but, sure. Yeah, <laughs> you know. But it's like doing counts, man. Right. Like, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I had a, an actual. Um, it's more like hardcore music, but sort of from a punk ethic. This yeah. guy named Buddy Nielsen was on the show. Cool, and he kind of had this whole thing about how he 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 was sort of a you know a every man level climber you know he's like a five eight five nine trad climber yeah but he's climbing yeah and and but he's like i love trad climbing because he actually liked you know there were some rules like mm. you had to like you know because he was talking about how like in these these musical genres like you know if you got to walk the walk or people right. are like Beat yeah, it, especially you know. in the hardcore scene man. for good and worse i mean yeah. it also is like stifles creativity probably yeah. but but anyway but he just had this idea that like it's kind of cool because like you know you, there are rules to play by and with track climbing yeah. there are i mean they get softer and softer by the year but you know it's still got these like this is what defines it and at all forms of climbing yeah, you know the rules totally. define it tennis without a net is pretty boring right you need yeah. rules you need boundaries you need things to like structure i think most sports in in some way and mm -hmm. you know sport climbing it's like yeah, it's got a lot of rules, actually. 
Um, so I want to ask you about the, you keep talking about, oh yeah, then I forgot and I started up or I did an up. Yeah. <laughs> Get stuck back I had in. a great time, but has there been a cautionary tale or, or have you mostly like you well, know, yeah. had, had pretty like good success and then walked away again or? No, um, I've, I've had, I mean, the one, and this is a complicated answer and I'm right. doing a bunch of it's speaking. okay, we're here for complicated answers. All right, well, I don't want to go too into it, but like okay. I've kind of developed this scale of complexity and the, the more complexity you add into any situation, whatever it is, the harder it is to predict the outcomes in that situation. So in sport climbing, for example, the complexity is pretty low, but you still get hurt, but not very many people die sport climbing. It still does happen. But if you think about the hundreds and thousands of people that are out there sport climbing versus the deaths, it's pretty good. And then you bump it up a level and you're like track climbing. And yeah, people get injured more. It's a more complex environment. You're adding gear, potentially loose rock. Things are, things are getting more complicated. Then you add in like big wall climbing and trad climbing. And it's still pretty safe, I think. You know, the numbers are pretty low of like fatalities every year, but it's a more complex environment. You get more committed. And then you get all the way up to like pretty hard alpine climbing at altitude. And you're in a very complex environment that you cannot predict. Things are going to interact in ways that are too complicated to predict. And then the consequences are very, very high if you get it wrong. So when you're in these high, you know, highly complicated environments, with high consequence outcomes, then people tend to die if they get, if they make an error. And you can sometimes even not make an error and just not understand the situation and you still die. And people die ice climbing, people die on the highway. You know, it happens. That's not the, That doesn't mean it's good or bad. It's just that for me, I tend to aim for environments most of the time where I can control enough of the variables that I'm less likely to die. I really like being alive. It's great, man. <laughs> right. You know, not every day is great. I have my bad days, but like that at a TED, it's a pretty good day. You know, right. I'm going to get to go fly my paraglider tomorrow and I'm going to like write something that I'm into and I'm going to get to hang out with you or somebody else who's like cool and doing interesting things. And I'm going to learn something like most days. It's pretty great to be alive. And in alpine climbing, as much as I enjoyed it and, and still do enjoy it, the complex and environment with the high consequences, I just saw way too many people die. Right. I mean, it's, you, you know, it happened right in your home yeah. front a month ago. Yeah. Right. And, and you know, a lot of, a lot of people were giving those guys gears like, ah, you know, I was supposed to be dangerous. It, it, what they were doing, there is no safe version of that. It's like, you cannot go into big, complicated Alpine terrain and go, right, this is safe. I'm not going to bring school kids into big, complicated Alpine terrain for a reason. It's not safe. And as a guide, I don't have a hope of keeping them safe there. I can't do it at all, nor can they make the decision to be there. So I'm not taking them there. Right. You know, if you want to go there, let's have a talk. <laughs> I can see where you are in your life and what, you know, what you want to do and what you understand about it. And maybe we'll go do that. But for me, yeah, for alpine climbing, that's what I see over and over and over again. And it's, it's you know, I feel pretty frustrated about it, honestly, right now. I'm really tired of watching people die, mm -hmm. you know, like... Years ago with the Uli, it was like, you know, we talked about it a lot. And, it, 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 you know, I lived at Uli's house and he would stay at my house in Camor and we talked about it. And, you know, he, people seem surprised by, you know, climbers in, in general and alpine climbers in particular dying. It's, I don't think it's a surprise anymore. If it is, you probably have, you know, like it's a surprise to the families. It's a tragedy to them. And I don't mean to belittle that at all. Like it sucks. And it's because of sitting in rooms with families and like you see the impact that that has and you can't, 
really pretend anymore. It's like, if you go into the mountains, having sat in those rooms with those people, you go in there with a lot more weight on your shoulders. Right. And I don't think many people in climbing have a realistic assessment of how dangerous it is. I think sport climbing, you can get away with that. Ice climbing, get away with it for a long time, but it's going to bite you. You know, are you actually okay with that? And until you have an accident, you don't know the answer to that. Or until you have a close friend that goes in in front of you, you don't have an answer to that. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, like Mothers Against Drunk Driving shows like Carnage videos. I sort of think that might be a responsible thing to do. If you're going to teach people how to alpine climbing, part of the mentoring process should be like, here's the graphic outcome. Nobody gets out alive. Are you actually cool with that? Base jumpers realize this. You know, they're like, they write a letter to their family. If I go in, this is what I was thinking. And I think for some of the more, you know, high complexity, high consequence forms of climbing, that probably ought to be standard procedure too. It's interesting because not specifically to, to uh, the recent accidents up in the Canadian Rockies, but it's, it's easy to downplay like the risk or these particular climbers have the risk at hand and everything else. But I, I mean, the risk to me and actually... I've often, I think, been thinking this complexity idea mm. without having words to it, which is really great that you've, you've talked about this here because it does put a perspective on it. It's just a framework that works for me. Yeah, but, you know, the complexity is really what we're talking about. But the yeah. thing is, is, and because I've always said that, okay, yeah, we can sort of downplay the risk and the climbers themselves can, can say, well, yeah, I know it's risky, but uh, this is why. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do ABC. <laughs> but the risk, and now I would say the complexity, because yeah. that's a better word for it is the draw i mean it's yeah. it's going into the complex environment as you call it is why they're not sport climbing yeah and and to say that they can control it but you know hans organ for yeah, example like he knew what he was going into he yeah. always did yeah and so any any and it's not just he knew it and it was like this byproduct. It was the thing. Yeah. I want to be in a complex environment yeah. where I have to try to, you know, control the chaos to, to use a phrase that's been been placed in, in that same context many yeah. times. And I mean, that is an idiotic phrase. You're not controlling the chaos. You're right. maybe finding a way right. to coexist with it. Oh, yeah. Coexist with the chaos. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like you don't there control. You, go. you got another, another way. You just put it into a, a better way of thinking for sure. <laughs> but um, I mean, it's just interesting because you know the carnage video it, it it does have like you know you could say yeah that would be a good way to do it but you know there's a person who's will do two things a that's somebody else yeah it is always somebody else till it's you man <laughs> and then also like man that like yeah. that carnage is actually kind of interesting yeah. you know and so it's a, you know it's a tricky thing to well, sort of but I think like, try I, to wrap I don't your head around those the motivations. Are, I don't think those things are like weird or unbalanced. Mm -hmm. It's like if somebody looks at that and walks in there, you know, and 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 goes for it. I have zero problem with sure. that. In yeah. fact, I think that's it's, what I'm talking about. It's yeah. like you like know the game and you walk in there and you play it mm -hmm. right on. You want to like that's where you want to go. Then I support your right to do that to the death, man. Like right. I'm fully there with it. I think that's rad. What bothers me is that when people who maybe aren't aware of the equation in the same way make decisions that put them in that environment that's right. harder for me right like i i I, re I deeply regret i feel horrible for the families of the three people who died in the rockies recently they're all you know like they meant a lot to people mm -hmm. and it sucks 
but for them, I, I, I wish they'd be around longer, but they knew the game. Right. I don't think you can like, I don't fault them for make, making, they didn't make bad decisions. They went and tried to climb a really complex face and it didn't work out. And this is to be an expected outcome of climbing in that environment. It's, I'm not surprised. I'm, I'm, I'm saddened. It sucks. But if we're going to play in those places, then the odds are high that eventually they will bite us. So, I mean, life's fatal. How, you know, yeah, you just like, got to yeah, choose how you want to live. And that's how right. they chose to live. Right. Yeah. But I just hope it's done. People who go into that environment, I see a lot of people marching out there with poor educations. You know, they don't understand snow at all. They don't have much time in the mountains, but they're going for it. And I don't think they've scraped somebody up at the bottom of a face. And until you've done that, I don't think you can really say what the, you know, or at least work that through intellectually to some degree. I think it's right. hard to say, yes, I know what I'm getting myself into here. I mean, you sort of full circle. I, I uh, you probably don't know this, but I marched into to to with the intention of repeating the North Pillar of North Twin. Oh, interesting. Yeah, back. I didn't in, know uh, that. Yeah, well, nobody really does because it was not. <laughs> Uh, it was ill for, for those of you who don't know what the right. North Pillar of North Twin. This is like it's called the Black Hole in the Canadian Rockies, and and uh, it's a hell of a face. This thing is yeah. like big, steep. It's got a lot of objective hazards. It's got snowfields in it, and when it's warm to climb on it, the rocks tend to fall down. Otherwise, it's pretty hard. But it's like it's like bigger than El Cap, and a lot more hazardous. And so I didn't know you went in there. That's well, cool. it hadn't been. It had been climbed twice by the two first yeah. ascents, and that was it. Yeah. Uh, but no, we, I mean, and it just, when you Who'd said, you go in there with? Oh, this guy, Marco Cornicchioni. But oh. we, I mean, when I say went in there, that's all that happened. Okay. Well, that's good. Bro. <laughs> yeah, and that, well, it made me think when you said our marching and that don't know about this and don't know about that, that was, we, you know, the woolly shoulder you hike up over and you like, see the black hole. Yeah. You'd like, yeah, you can't see it all day. And then within like a hundred steps, the entire yeah. thing, like your comes future, your destiny. It was, I mean, Marco was like 10 minutes behind me. And before he even got up there, I was like, well, this is not happening. I'm not going. To. Well, it was also just plastered in snow and we were hoping to have a rock climbing kind of thing. So, but anyway, but it just reminded me of that of like, yeah. it, with an, you know, if I maybe had eaten an extra power bar that day and was in a better mood, I might have said, fuck it, I'm going to go down there. We're going to go down there anyway. Yeah, and, who, and right on if that's yeah, what you want to do. I know, but know? man, it would have been a terrible mistake, I think. Yeah. Well, so. I, even you could look, you could argue that going on big faces is is close to a terrible mistake to begin with. Because sure. you're not going to like control the dice. Yeah. Everybody that's done anything on that wall has a story. Sure. It yeah. never goes according to plan. Right. Toss and, your boots off. Yeah, throw one your of boots them. off for your Steve <laughs> Hobbs. But I, 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 I don't mean to diss these things right. again. It's like I, I fully support it. I've done a fair amount of like alpine climbing of one stripe or another. I guess my push a little bit would be to try to make decisions that are based on, on realism. Right. And if you're okay with that and that's where you are, then awesome. Cool. You know, and I see that in paragliding and in kayaking too, you know. It's like if you've got a pretty good handle on, you know, what's going on with those sports then awesome you know it's like i i fly my glider a lot i kayak a lot you know i ice climb in avalanche terrain i'm making big decisions about complex terrain all the time this is not something that's like alien to me but i try to do that with a pretty healthy amount of realism and and get a good education on how to deal with things you know and and understand the snow understand how the mountains work like, why do rocks fall down on east-facing things at 7.30 in the morning and south-facing things at 12? Like, you need to know this stuff. 
And there's not much information out there. It's hard to come by all of that. But, right. you know, professional level education goes a long way. Like not the weekend, like, you know, AST1 avalanche course, like go take the real deal, man. Right. And go out there with people who are good at it and, and pay them if you have to. You can like hire the best guide in North America for like 500 bucks a day US and you can learn. Like, you know, I, I think that's pretty critical. So getting that education and same with sport climbing, like learn how to do it properly more or less. Right. <laughs> well, none of us did, but it, you know. Yeah. Well, let, let's finish up with something more fun. Yeah. I think. yeah. And, and, I'm, and I'm thinking of you when I, when I talk about that. And I had Tim Emmett on. And oh, we, yeah, Tim's great. We just never got there. Um, but I wanted to talk about, uh, is it Helmkin? Yeah, Helmkin Falls. Helmkin Falls. The British add an extra E, so it becomes like Helmkin Falls. Okay. But proper North American pronunciation, in my view, is Helmkin Falls. Helmkin but. Falls. So t- t- tell, tell us about that, because it, it seems to have been this thing that came into your life in the last few years and just like is one of the coolest, wildest things. Yeah. And, and I think the way you guys went about it, for it was a case of like, well, how am I going to yeah. climb this and control this and make this yeah. like what it's become. And it, cause it wasn't obvious how the hell you were going to ever climb this thing. So let's uh, give us a little background on that place and we'll, we'll wrap it up with that. Well, the, I mean, the Helmkin Falls idea was I'd push dry tooling and mixed climbing as far as I thought it could go. It was like, it got to the point where, you know, is, is M 15 or whatever. Is that like a continue? Is that like that much more rad than M 12 or whatever? It's like, dry tooling hit this wall where you couldn't make it more difficult in my view and it's still kind of stuck there the hardest routes are on comps i think now in in dry tooling so anyhow i was like all right and so either i do the same thing i did with sport climbing and like throw my gear away and and walk away or what could you do and i found this picture on the internet and and underneath the picture of helmkin falls with all this spray ice stuff on it it's like some idiot like Will Gad could come here and climb this, you know? I was like, idiot, that is my calling, you know? Add some, like, derogatory <laughs> things into it, and I'll be right there. I'll live that Big shit. Big eye on your shirt. Yeah, that's me, idiot. Anyway, so I'm, I'm there. That's my calling. But uh, I couldn't get anybody to go with me. <laughs> couldn't find another idiot? No, it was like, oh, that's a stupid idea, dude. And, and um, so, so, again, it's like this, this, this free, ginor- ginormous, free-hanging waterfall in front of a giant it's like somebody ripped the the roof the roof off a 500 foot tall stadium yeah it's that big and 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 in the winter time the the blowback from from the water hitting the ground covers the walls in this like freezes on crazy it's not even rime ice because it's thicker than that but it's like giant rime ice yeah it's like it's like whip frosting sprayed all over it and then it actually makes stalactites and all the standard ice formations but like on a scale that's massive and but nobody would go with me right and then Tim is like, oh, hey, mate, I'm coming to town. You know, you want to go climbing? And I was like, oh, I do. And I have just the project for us. And and so I scooped him. And I don't think he had any idea what he was getting Where into. Where is it? It's like six hours north of Canmore, basically. Okay. Northwest of Canmore. Okay. And it's in the... And, so it looks temp- like a Game of Thrones like oh, man. backdrop or something. It's it is incredible. so cool. Yeah. It's such a it is just a magic place. Right. And, and we didn't know it was that magic because we only saw the distant pictures. We didn't see any that were in there. And Tim and I get to the shoulder and it's like, wow. This is insane. And we had to get in there. And, and the problem is pieces of it break off. So Tim and I are like chucking rocks and, and pieces of ice at the free hangers to make a path that, so that we can walk in there just to see what's going on. And man, it was cool. And we're both, we just sat there. We're like, how do we even deal with this? And mm-hmm. Tim coming from a very British thing is like, well, you know, maybe we can put an ice screw in, but no, that's not working. And the rock's shit. Natural gear is no good. And so we were like, 
he was quite, he was pretty sure we were done, I think, but um, I have zero problem bolting. And I was like, well, the rock looks lousy, but it's frozen together. You know, maybe we can like climb up and hang on our ice tools and put in a, you know, and Tim's like, oh, that's a great idea because <laughs> he's like the Labrador. And, and so next thing you know, we're like climbing this overhanging spray ice, which was, it's, it's the coolest, I, I kind of absolute scale. I think that's as cool as any climbing I've ever done in my life in any form. You know, it's like climbing the tufas in increase or something you know it's like that level of cool and and it's ice and it's hard and it's interesting and it's intricate and it's chaotic and it's really cool so yeah, yeah that sucked me right in right it's been like a like it's almost probably almost been 10 years since oh, okay it's been that long yeah and yeah. and you know tim and i it took us a long time to figure out how to like break the icicles off to climb on them and how to get gear that in such a way that if they you know, like, well, sometimes these icicles have a chain reaction. So one will fall off and then it'll start blowing all the others off in a chain reaction. So you've got to make sure your rope's running in such a way that if one of them breaks, it doesn't land on the rope between you and the belayer because then you'd get squeegeed. Right. And it would not be good, man. So um, a lot of learning and it was super complex. And we took, we just slowed things down, took it very slowly as slowly and carefully as you can with Tim and he was the perfect partner yeah I mean I thought of that too when you just said that like I can't think anybody else who would well Tim was just psyched you know like and that's one thing I found over the years with partners it's like you want to hang out with people that like care and that Mm want to try it and are psyched on the climbing you know and like love it and that's that's like over and over again my best climbing relationships have all been with people that really love to climb and surprisingly a lot of people who claim to be climbers they don't they don't really love it it's like their identity, but it's like, you know, I'm pretty psyched. I'm like, I'm like, like, I'm like a goat or something that will eat anything on the ground. I'll climb anything because it's, it's like, and Tim's the same way. It's like, oh yeah, we'll get to climb. And, and, you know, I still feel that way. It's been, I've been doing this for like 35 years and I'm still psyched. But yeah, Helmkin was like, like, well, there was this weird complexity though of, of coming back another season and it's covered in ice and you have to find the bolts. Well, yeah. And so, yeah. How do you find the bolts, right? Like, how does that work? So I was like, you can hang avalanche beacons, but the batteries don't last that long. And I came up with all these different theories, like hang streamers, but they would just be attractants for the spray. And so the spray would form on the bolts faster. And well, and you'd have an icicle that would rip the streamer right off. Exactly. So there, there, and then, you know, I was like, you could put those little anti-shoplifting tags on there. But yeah, I, I couldn't figure out how to get like the shoplifter shoplifting device up there to find the tags, right? I know those things don't work anyhow because I'd like a misspent youth. So anyhow, all these different things, and, and uh, yeah, I came up with this idea of a metal detector. Yeah, that seems. I mean, in retrospect, I'm like, yeah, just use of course, a metal, metal detector. detector. But yeah. how do you get a metal detector in climbing in the same frame in your brain? It yeah. probably took a while. <laughs> it did take a yeah. while, but it was it was so much fun to climb up there, and you you hang off your ice tools, you like clip into your ice tools on the overhanging spray ice and then get out the metal detector and wave it around and then you yeah. pack your bolt out. Yeah. Then you find out roughly where it is and you get closer. And, and I've got a new system. Actually, I'm going to get a bunch of uh, a bunch of reco tags, which are the avalanche things they put in clothing. And those are super accurate okay. and hang those in the tags. And cause they're passive, then you can come back with a little reco wand thing. It looks like a sort of like a security wand to use in an airport. Okay. You come back and find the, the reco tags with that thing. Nice. So that's the future there. Pretty All excited. Right on. I'm, I'm going back this winter for sure. I didn't get to go last winter. But. What's your reco tag budget? Well, I'm, 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 I'm going to be so cunning. And okay. like, I've always gotten sponsorship or anything to allow me to do things, right? Like, right. so I'm going to, I actually, I'm going to call up and be like, I have a great new market for you. There's probably four people in the world that care. But I'm also, I'm pushing for reco and like, you know, and that's one of the things we're doing here at Black Diamond is right. I'm, I'm pushing Black Diamond and Arcteryx hard to put reco gear in all of their 
um, alpine climbing harnesses and all of their alpine climbing tops. So we cut down on the lost climber situation. Right. And uh, the reco tags, because I've had to work with them to my work as a guide more as well and understand how they work. Now I'm getting, uh, they work great. It's good technology and it cuts down on rescue um, costs massively and it cuts down on danger to the rescuers massively. So basically my, my, you know, if you are an alpine or an ice climber, please take a beacon with you. It's like, I know we're all against this. I've had two situations lately where it made a real difference um, in, in outcomes to the families and, and the overall situation. And if you're standing there on an ice climb looking at a field of debris, it's gonna suck if you're not wearing beacons. And you can get super light shovels, super light probes. So that's one thing that's changed in my like game of climbing is I do bring that stuff and we're gonna get some more live recoveries out of it. So I'm, I'm over the excuses, even in alpine climbing at least have reco on you. You know, my friends on the Park Service Rescue in Canada, they're probing while they're long-lined into a helicopter. Like, if you've ever worked around helicopters, trying to do that is heinous, man. Right. And it's hard for the pilot. You know, they're trying to maintain control. And if they screw up a hover in a relatively high altitude and windy places, they're going to, like, yank people. So, yeah, get reco. Wear a beacon if you're an alpine or an ice climber. And, um, you know, it, it, it makes a big difference in, in outcomes potentially to your group and certainly to the people who might have to come and hack your carcass out. So right. don't do that. And if you go to Helmkin Falls, bring a record detector next yeah. time because we're going to have those things. Probably but yeah. maybe get in touch with you or Tim. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah but I mean, yeah. all this stuff is cool. Yeah. It's a way to, re yeah. like, the climbers I admire most are those that have reinvented their sports. Sure. You know, from, from Jeff Lowe to Uli to people like that. And, and so this new technology is a way to, like, reinvent it a little bit and channel a bit of that. Let's do something new that's cool. Cool. Our last question. Um, you, you've got decades in the game at a high level at a lot of things. So what's, uh, what do you think your little piece of advice to uh, stay psyched and, and, and you know, stay in love with the game? How, how, what's worked for you? The, the reason I'm still psyched on all these sports, I think, is that I'm, I am, I'm getting better at them or I'm learning more or doing new things with them. You know, I, I, for me, that fires me up. And when sport climbing hit a wall for me where I couldn't see developing it in a new way, I had to do something different. And that's okay. Don't fight that. Right. You know, it's like, I still like going climbing, but I think climbers tend to be like, it's not doing for me what it used to do. Therefore, I'm done. It's like, no, you can reinvent it. Or, or, or I'm just going to grind away. Or and, I'm going to grind away. Try to recapture that feeling that's yeah. never going to be there again. Yeah, I mean, like. It's something I've sort of like, you know, had in my head yeah. sometimes of like, you know, I'm just like kind of climbing to find a feeling that I had 20 years ago. Some days, you get it, I'm yeah. not going to get it. Yeah, I'm not going to find that feeling again because yeah. it had to do with who I was then and where I was. Well, I love the Fugazi line. You can't be what you were, so you better just start being what you are. Right. And I think in climbing and in life, it's like if you can tweak what you're doing. Like I wish to God I'd had the vision back in the in the mid-90s when I was ending my sport climbing career to go, wow, you know what? You could do this on El Cap. Right. How rad would that be? Like, right. I just didn't have the vision. So maybe if you can tweak it, that's cool. Or if you can, you know, do in other sports, there's a lot of great sports in the world, man. Like flying a paraglider at like 18,000 feet over the Rockies and the, the Vario screaming and you got jets going underneath you and there's clouds to fly to. Like, this is pretty cool. Right. Like, go do that. Like, right. if you're not, if, they, if it, what you're doing is not blowing your hair back, either reinvent it or do something else, I think would be my thing. And then the other thing I would say is get real training. You know, that, that's well, one important. Of the, I mean, one of the things that I sort of admire is the fact that, I mean, physically, 
that you're still in the game, you know? <laughs> More or less, yeah. yeah. It's getting harder, but I'm, right. I'm still psyched, man. But yeah, so tell me about the training thing real quick, and then we'll... Well, I've always trained. Like, I like training. And as I, you know, it's one of the things I loved about sport climbing is the focused training. And, and I, I will always train. But as I, as I get older, I think the thing, one of the reasons I'm still able to do my sports to a reasonable level is that I switch them up. Mm-hmm. But I always do something. You know, like I'm going to, I'm always hiking up a hill. I'm always going to the climbing gym for an hour when I'm traveling on business to do some corporate talk or whatever. I get my hour or two in there and I do something every day. And I, I do less structured training than I did when I was younger, but I can still climb at a pretty decent level, you know, not coming off a bit of an injury right now, but, you know, commit to being an athlete at whatever level you can. I think that's pretty important. And it doesn't mean you got to like strap yourself into spandex and run on a treadmill. That is, you're going to go, you're going to go crazy doing that. But like you can go for a walk, you know, and, and the days where I get out with my kids and we like ride our mountain bikes, we're active all day. That's great, man. We're training. Right. That's going to work well the next time I need to go all day in the mountains. But you got to keep moving. And movement's fun, man. I'm going to go, I'm going to go climbing today. It's the gym here and I'm totally stoked. <laughs> That's stupid. Eh? You'd think I'd learned, but I am still totally stoked on it. It's really good. Nice. Yeah. So if you're sick of your like crummy home Woody, just have Will come over. He'll show you how <laughs> rad it actually is. Well, it yeah. probably is pretty good. You know, like I remember the first Woody I ever climbed on was here in Salt Lake City. And it's a bunch of like guys listening to like really ragged hardcore music of one stripe or another, like cranking on the Woody. Those are some of the best times of my life. Right. Yeah. Like, I look back at that and I'm like, we were so aggro and, and, and so into what we were doing, and it was awesome. There's a little bit of that left here. I bet there is, yeah. man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, those were such good times, man. But that commitment, I think, is what we're all like. That's what I love in life. When you're like committed and you're trying really hard to do something cool, I think that's just great. All right, folks. Some deep knowledge there from Will Gadd, and a lot of fun too. Thanks so much to Will for sitting down. What a pleasure it was. Talked to him after all these years, and we've been trying to get it done in Ure actually over the years, and just he's too busy kicking ass, frankly, in uh, in Ure to sit down with the Norma Cast, a very whirlwind thing down there. But anyway, we got it done. Very happy to have it. Thanks again. So I want to give a little shout out to myself and let you guys know that. I actually am involved with two other podcasts. I know the Norma Cast is probably plenty. I get it. But just in case it's not, I produce a podcast called Totally Deep, a skiing podcast. If you're into skiing, Totally Deep podcast can be found all over the place. And also, I'm involved in another climbing podcast, The Runout, with Andrew Bisharat. So if you don't get enough climbing podcast in your life go check that one out as well the run out podcast also available all over the place just posted up one with emily harrington and tara kersner talking about sladies and andrew kind of steers the ship a little more over there and it's way more topic oriented and also shorter mercifully shorter than the enormous cast so check those out again totally deep podcast in the Runout Podcast, available where you get your podcasts. Okay, folks, get out there, have some fun, but be careful. You know, be careful driving to the crag. Put your phone down. Be careful when you're at the crag. Put your phone down. And, of course, check your knots. (laughs) 
Are you guys rolling? Okay, well, we may want to leave that in anyway. Okay, uh, good day. And this is our album. Oh, we should even start the album. With, like, wait, wait, I'm behind what? the mic. Hold okay, it, hold get it. in. Good day. We'll start off like we... Stu- you, do oh, the thing, yeah. Okay, good day. I'm Bob McKenzie. This is my brother, Doug. How's it going, eh? Welcome to the Great White Album. <laughs> Take oh. off the Great White North album. album. This is our album, and welcome to it. Good day. <laughs> oh, leave me hanging.